So is it ever ethical to be naked with a client? Are you actually asking me? Yeah. Okay, so you are sitting in your office with a new client and the intake conversation turns to their previous therapist and they toss off a piece of information, a comment about something that previous therapist did or said that really concerns you, maybe even alarms or disturbs you. Go ahead and think of an example. Maybe it's happened to you. What would a client say or what has a client said about something a previous therapist has done that you would find very concerning? Other than having sex with the client. Let's set that one example aside for now. Think of another one or two. I'll wait. So if you heard your new client say that their previous therapist did that thing you just came up with, how would you react? What would you do? If one of the answers that occurred to you is that you would perhaps encourage your client to report their former therapist to the licensing board, you are far from alone. I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the podcast where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ofer Zur about what he calls subsequent therapist syndrome. A surprisingly common phenomenon where a client makes a licensing board complaint against a prior therapist they've had based on the advice or encouragement of their new therapist. I think you truly will be surprised at the frequency at which this apparently occurs. Dr. Zur is a psychologist, an ethics professor of more than 25 years, and a consultant around ethical, clinical, and forensic matters in psychotherapy. So he has had a great deal of experience with the board complaint process and all the reasons why therapists end up embroiled in this process, all the reasons why therapists get complained on and who is doing the complaining and all the various outcomes. I first came across Dr. Zur's work when my license renewal was coming up and I needed to rack up those last couple of ethics CEU credits for my renewal. If you know, you know. And in the class I was taking, he mentioned this phenomenon of subsequent therapist syndrome. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I'm very interested in our intraprofessional dynamics, the stuff that happens between therapists. So as soon as I heard Dr. Zor mention this, I knew I had to talk to him about it. And I think you're really going to find the conversation that resulted quite interesting. You're going to hear us call into question the appropriateness and even the ethicality, yes, that is a word I just checked, of subsequent therapists encouraging their clients to make these kinds of complaints. You're going to hear us talk about the impact of theoretical orientation and theoretical turf wars in our field, inciting therapists to turn on each other, the influence of risk management mentality on our perceptions of therapeutic standards, and why therapists have such a hard time simply saying to each other, I disagree. And of course, you are also going to hear Dr. Zur ask me if it's ever ethical to be naked with a client. Give it a listen and see what you think. Welcome, Dr. Zur. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. I'm happy to be here and to discuss a very important, prevalent issue in our field. Yes. So 
Um, let's get right into it. So you coined the term subsequent therapist syndrome. So just um, to explain for our listeners, can you explain a little bit about um, what that is and then talk about how you started to notice that phenomenon um, that, that that describes? The subsequent therapy syndrome refers to situation or circumstances where the next therapist, like you saw somebody and then they quit with you or they terminated with you and they see somebody. So the, the next therapist uh, may act unethically or even illegally by providing, quote, an expert opinion that the prior therapist acted illegally, substandard care, or unethically. So to be even more specific, um, the subsequent therapist will say something like, what, he hugged you? Or what, he, he came from Israel and brought you some water from the Jordan River? Whatever. Or, <laughs> or um, did, did you leave the office and did therapy on, on a walk, on a trail? It comes from two angles, usually. It's either come from theoretical orientation or it comes from a narrow view of risk management and ethics and standard of care. So you have the the theoretical orientation. So like you're talking about situations where someone might be like, oh, this client should have been treated with this specific modality for this specific issue and they weren't. And then the next therapist is seeing that as negligent. Um, as some kind of therapeutic negligence, for example, or you see you see like uh, something that is not within the conventional bounds, like you said, like going for a walk with a client outside and doing a session, you know, walking and talking um, that someone might think like, oh, that's a boundary violation and that's unethical and that should be complained on, essentially. So it's like uh, not understanding the theoretical orientation, the relational in therapy, or the context. Uh, the standard of care is not an A+. Plus. The standard of care is a C-, minus, which I've been kind of dealing with court issues on this issue for the last 30 years plus. Like, I worked one time with a woman who couldn't relate to me in the office. So we, she had three dogs, and she could be side-by-side -side kind of a woman. Like, my daughter is a side-by-side -side kind of a girl. I mean, she's, she's 40. So she's kind of... <laughs> so, you know, we sit in the car with my daughter. She allows me to tell the story. And um, she starts talking about something interesting. So I turn away from her. The conversation go deeper. She tells me a little bit too much about her boyfriend. I turn to her. The conversation dies. Right, right, right. I mean, Freud was, Freud was a side-by-side -side kind of a guy. He didn't look at people's eyes. So with this woman with the three dogs in the office... Nothing, but going on a on a trail, and but the next therapist may say, "What? Three dogs on a trail? That's not therapy." And then what they do as part of the syndrome, they encourage you to complain. So in a most shocking way, I would say that at least fifty percent. I hope you're sitting down and the audience is sitting down when they hear that. 50% of the board complaints, in my experience of long term, initiated by ill advice 
non-expert advice by the subsequent therapist who decides, oh, this is wrong, going for a walk, giving gift, holding. I mean, there was a one woman that I held her hand. She, she came just to be held to me to hold her hand. I could have speak Hebrew or Arabic to her. It wouldn't matter. She just needed, she was never touched as a girl. She was never touched as a woman. And whatever it is, she's, I just held her hand. And some somebody will say, what? So you, you're saying half, you're saying like about, about half of board complaints are initiated in this capacity in your experience, that it's it's in conjunction with, or it's directly by the 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 next, the subsequent therapist. So we are kind of, in some regard, our worst enemies, which you don't see in, in many other professions. I mean, you, you you have made that comment in some of your work around this, right? That it's very uncommon, you know, for, you know, say like a nurse or a doctor to register a complaint against another nurse or doctor or someone, you know, there's so many people who hold professional licenses and this doesn't seem to be... Um, very common in those fields compared. I mean, I certainly, 50% seems very, very high. It's very high. And what's, imp what's important to notice that the therapists do not call the board. What they do is they put fire under the patient to complain by saying, what, do a relationship. You know, it, my work has been about context and context has to do with who is a patient, what is the problem, where do you work with people? So let, let's get extreme a little bit, if you allow me. You knew it's coming. Go for it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you read my stuff. So is it ever ethical to be naked with a client? Are you actually asking me? Yeah. The answer is hell no. Okay. <laughs> so I, I moved to the small town of Sonoma. There's only one gym in town. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I take a shower. Step out of the, the shower stool and guess who is there? Right. So it's all context. So the next therapist say, what? You were naked with a client? I admit it's pretty radical. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but instead of saying what, you say, what were the circumstances? Right. Why did you go for a walk with your client? Why did he bring you or she brought you uh, some water from the Jordan River? I mean, that also to me raises the whole question of clients as reliable narrators or unreliable narrators, which I think is, you know, I, I think in my generation of therapists, maybe a little bit younger. So I'm 40. I've been in the field decade-ish, um, although my family it's a, has a history of being in this field, so it's a little bit gave me a little bit of. A so do I. But... My mother was a psychologist <laughs> too. <laughs> oh, okay, that's amazing. Yeah, um, I think there's something now, at least, that's very, um, I think, becoming increasingly taboo about questioning cl what clients say, like the veracity of what clients say, because there's this idea, right, that like of being more um, collaborative and client-centered that, you know, I think is is becoming more and more, uh, you know, sort of the coin of the realm. And like that, that part of that means like the client is the expert on their own experience and you kind of just, you know, accept what they say. I don't think people would explicitly say that means you accept what the client says at face value, but I think that's often the result, um, which is, you know, incredibly problematic in a lot of ways because, I mean, everybody is coming in 
every human being is coming in with a certain amount of bias, you know, as to their own experiences and how they represent them. But it's also, it's also varies with the theoretical orientation, you know, because if you're psychoanalytic, you won't take the clients in their own words. If you're humanistic, you may be inclined more. So if you, so it's a, a lot of it has to do with theoretical orientation, but it seems like we are, thank God, moving, the field is moving to be much more eclectic. I mean, we don't have... I mean, you are you are young, so we call your generation digital natives. I, I'm I'm a digital immigrant, so kind of. Um, but the digital natives, there is much less weddedness to theoretical orientation. However, your generation also exposed much more to risk management teaching. So, what does a risk management insurance company tell us? Don't touch. Don't leave the office. Don't engage in dual relationship. Don't give gift. Blah, blah. Don't, don't, don't do a home visit. Don't, 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 and don't. Nothing to do with the standard of care. So when the therapist, the subsequent therapist, went to all these workshops by the insurance companies of don't, 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 and don't, and the client said, oh, we went for a walk. Oh, he gave me a hug. Oh, she came to my house. They say, what? And then they encourage the client to file a complaint. And even though they didn't talk to the former therapist, and you mentioned before other professions, we don't see that among attorneys. We don't see it among doctors. We don't see it among accountants, or we don't see it among nurses. It's something, I mean, you need to help me here. How come? So there's a few, you know, thoughts I've had about that. So one thing, you know, you've mentioned theoretical orientation a couple of times now, and I, I wonder if possibly that the diversity of theoretical orientation is so much greater. You know, there's, you know, if you're an orthopedist, right, I, I'm sure there's disagreements among orthopedists around how to, you know, handle people's skeletons, but yeah. But not the same between humanistic and psychoanalytic. Yeah. Exactly. Not not over that same vast spectrum where there's so much disagreement and so much still opacity about like how do you create, you know, psychological, you know, and behavioral change. That's like still a much more open question perhaps than some of the in these other fields. So that's one thought I have. And the second one, so theoretical orientation and risk management indoctrination are really in the sense of expertise like doctor and nurses and even uh, attorneys, there's so much more exposure. We are kind of all you and I in the room and I'm the expert and you need to bow and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so we have the sense of grandiosity that we develop in the room. And then we go to a, to a risk management workshop to tell us don't, 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 and don't. And uh, I remember what it was 30 years ago when I started my campaign against dual relationship, against demonizing dual relationship. And so I played basketball with somebody and uh, then he wanted to see me because he knew me, actually. Because he said, you know, you took hard fouls really well and you gave hard fouls. And I like <laughs> That's great. Which is I not like true. That. I never gave hard fouls. I, mean, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but if they t he tells that to a subsequent therapist, then maybe. <laughs> and, and then I went uh, on a field trip with his wife and she 
she saw me negotiating some conflict among five years old girls. My daughter was there and her daughter was there. And so they come and see me and I call around 30 years ago and, I, and everybody said, oh, do a relationship are wrong and lead to sex. And I wasn't sure if sex with him, sex with her, sex with both of them. I, 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 I was really... Like, what was the trajectory? <laughs> and it's not, it's not that unusual still to think about that people say do a relationship unethical. I mean, goodness, uh, I get hired <laughs> on bi-weekly basis to, to do this work. So when somebody says, what? They have do a relationship with you? They play basketball with you? There's only one league in town and I'm not going not to play basketball because some of my clients are there or not to go on a field trip with my daughter. So, but somebody from downtown New York, downtown LA, Chicago, you know, would say, what? Right. And the what leads to, once you file a complaint and and also and it's unethical and and all of that yeah well i think you're onto something to me with the risk management piece because i think um it's often i think now risk management is conflated with uh as if it's the same thing as minimizing harm and it's not i mean risk management is a totally different i mean it's perhaps some overlap but it's not the same as minimizing harm in the therapeutic relationship I can make the point that it's actually causing harm, not not holding the hand of a client who wants to her hand held, it can be harmful, and not going for a walk with a woman and the three dogs will be useless. So I see risk management, kind of don't touch, don't self-disclose, don't 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 as as very harmful, and again it's interesting attorneys do not turn on attorneys. And even though what I wish sometimes that attorneys will challenge each other, not necessarily go to the board, but will challenge each other or doctors or nurses. And, but they're kind of living hands off and we don't. We have the sense of entitlement. And we actually, it's a violation because you tell a client with the standard of care without being an expert on the standard of care. You tell the client what, whatever the what is, and you pretend as if you're an expert and you don't, you're, you're not most of the time. Absolutely not. Well, I, I keep thinking as we're talking, my mind keeps drifting back to this recent, it was a very ho high profile trial of a nurse. You may have seen some of the news about that uh, over the past year. It was a nurse who um, dispensed the wrong medication to a patient and the patient died, right? And so this um, this obviously horrible thing happened. Um, the She was um, arrested and charged criminally, which is very unusual for that to happen. And so what was really fascinating about this that case, and I saw this um, both kind of in the wider um, public conversation about it, but also I have a number of nurses um, as friends, and people, um, the way the nurses talked about this was they were pointing it out as a systemic problem that like this, um, you know, the nurses are operating within this hospital system where they're very rushed and there's these systems for like dispensing the medications that um, 
can malfunction a lot and make, you know, it actually very difficult and, and easy to make a, you know, perhaps catastrophic mistake. And every nurse that I saw talking about this publicly, you know, they weren't defending, obviously, the the terrible like loss of this person, but they were, you know, explaining like this, how this could happen. They were certainly empathizing with this nurse and trying to talk about like, it's not about this one person that is the problem. We need systemic change to, you know, the practice of nursing. And I, the, the comparison to me, like I have seen, you know, therapists make much less egregious public mistakes and just get dogpiled by other therapists. You know, nurses do not turn on each other. They sometimes will challenge each other personally, but they don't tell the client, call the board, or here's a here's the name of an attorney who can can file a lawsuit. To add on top of it, we have boards that are clueless about I mean, for me it's dual relationship in boundaries that have been kind of fighting clueless boards, people that I have right now, at least 10 live cases that I, I'm dealing with across the country where, oh, do a relationship unethical. I mean, wake up. I mean, for psychologists, counselors, MFTs, social workers, there is none in the code that says that all do a relationship because they're unavoidable in small towns. They're unavoidable in the military. In the military, you see a client and the client is not your client even. The, the commander-in-chief is your client. That means you may fix the client so they'll die in the next battle because you help them with a PTSD. Well, I think, too, even in urban settings, I'm thinking about smaller, like more insulated communities like here in Portland. If you're a therapist in like the queer community here, you will absolutely have dual relationships. It's 100 percent unavoidable. So but back to back to our topic. So the person who really put fire underneath the client is really violating the code of ethics because they are not expert about the standard of care. In order to understand what's the standard of care in each situation, you need to understand the context, you need to understand the client, you need to understand the, the pathology or the difficulties that clients are facing, you need to understand work your theoretical orientation that give you the bias, all these things create standard of care. And so just to say, do a relationship below standard of care, touch, gift, it's wrong. And But we are so moralistic about it. And you don't see it among nurses. You don't see it among uh, attorneys. You, you don't see this kind of uh, encouraging the client uh, to report. I wonder what people, so I'm imagining that some people would say like, well, maybe doctors should be more, you know, quick to um, police each other in the same way that like therapists do or the, that therapists are just trying to, you know, abide by this ethical responsibility we have to, to create these checks and balances on each other. You know, it's a very, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very good point. I prefer that some attorneys will call on each other more. Do they need to call the bar association? I'm not sure. And I think also within our field, I'm, and I've done it enough times, I mean, I'd got permission from the client and talked to the former therapist. And sometimes I was nice about it, and sometimes I say, what's the fuck? And I will listen. I will listen. What was it about being naked with the client? What was it about uh, having a heart foul on the basketball in the only gym in town? So I get permission. So I, I really agree with you that it's okay to try to hold each other accountable. 
but we are doing it in this moralistic, uh, oh, uh, don't talk about yourself if you're a psychoanalyst kind of, we have a lot of dogma in, in our field. So don't touch, don't self-disclose, yes, don't self-disclose in our generation with, with social media, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it 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 isn't it, like what you're describing, you know, is seems to be it's like this more extreme manifestation where people get into these whole entanglements with the board and everything um, because of this. But I see this same dynamic, you know, all over the place. Um, you know, if you look at like some of the therapists, like Facebook groups and everything, you'll see people just tossing off the word unethical, like all over the place. Like it's it, instead of saying, you know, I disagree with that and that we seem to have so much trouble just disagreeing with each other without um, bringing in this specter of ethics. And I don't I, I'm I'm just always thinking about like, what is that righteousness that is so permeate like permeating our whole field? You beautifully articulated it. It's, uh, it's you know, it started with a psychoanalytic. And there is like Israel, for example, is still psychoanalytically oriented. So for them to hear about my boundaries, you can imagine they're ready to expel me out of the country. So, <laughs> so it started with psycho, psychoanalysis that kind of don't self-disclose, definitely don't leave the office, and et cetera, et cetera. And then each orientation kind of tried to get the dominance. So we became this judgmental. And you said it correctly. In medicine, there's disagreement. But even the most radical kind of uh, of the mainstream medical people will agree perhaps there is time for, uh, you know, chemotherapy. Whatever it is, it's like... There's a conversation and dialogue within medicine, and uh, and there's so many ways to handle legal cases. So I think that uh, we are much more righteous, as as you mentioned, than than other professions. And there is kind of this the context and the flexibility and the different approaches. We all gravitate to certain kind of uh, orientation, and then we have the dominance. The absolute incredible horrible dominance of risk management because when you go to risk management workshop by the insurance company they forget to tell you we are here to protect the financial wellness of our institution that means try to stay super mainstream no hugs no gift no leaving the office so they won't be lawsuits and there won't be board complaints as they need to pay like stay within the like evidence-based practice uh the, the evidence is strongest in favor of that even it's much worse than that even yeah it, it's a it's somehow that don't it goes beyond evidence-based kind of because we did we do have evidence base for touch for god's sake i mean <laughs> well and for anything that benefits the therapeutic relationship yeah and some clients you know some clients need to hear about who you are. Are you gay? Are you straight? Are you, what's your relationship to culture and to race? I mean, it's, they need to know. And, and that's fair. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think self-disclosure is one where, you know, I, and I've talked to some of my friends who do a lot of supervision, you know, about this a bit and that self-disclosure is much more common than everybody is letting on and that people do way more of it than they want to admit because we know it's... Because they don't want to admit. 
this is kind of the point. They don't want to admit because the one they're talking to taking the last uh, workshop about uh, psychoanalysis or about risk management. It's really le a little bit less, as I mentioned earlier, about theoretical orientation in most in most part of the world. There's much more flexibility we've seen in, in the generation, in the last two generations, compared to what it was a few years ago. But risk management is out of control in many ways. And it's about profit for the insurance companies. It's not about the standard of care. And how many juries I need to explain that you know the standard of care is a minimum standard. It's a it's a C standard. It's not an A plus. And mistakes are part of the standard of care. I mean, I I tell sometimes judges, you know, even judges make mistakes and they think it's funny. And I can get away with my <laughs> yeah. accent with that too. So <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um have you seen I'm curious like if you've seen over the you know the time period that you've been doing this kind of work have you seen um these kinds of complaints that are either you know like encouraged or you know initiated by a, a, a you know subsequent therapist have you seen that um stay pretty consistent in terms of how common that is have you seen a change like what what has the trend been you know it's very hard to get statistics so uh, because i'm working right now with 10 different states around here, so I, I try to keep it. It has been pretty consistent, 50-60% were encouraged. They were not necessarily, they filed a complaint, they just did the what, and you should complain to the client, and then the client uh, complained. Uh, divorce cases, kind of, it's like, uh, you know, therapists have this sense of entitlement, uh, what we sometimes do in, in family therapy, it's not directly related, but it just gives a feel of the field. So uh, the attorney for the client wants you to be able to write something that Johnny should be with mom. So the, ex the examples that we, we use kind of, so mom bring Johnny to, to the waiting room and the therapist try to get mom into the room and she say, I would like you to meet Johnny. And she say, hi, Johnny. I say, Johnny, can you tell the doctor would you go with your father to a visit? And Johnny said, oh, no. Okay, so then the client has a letter ready to be written by the attorney that uh, the therapist writes, in my professional opinion, Johnny should go, go with dad because Johnny was frightened with the idea. And so the therapist suddenly become an expert on child custody, like the same way they become expert on, on boundaries and stuff like that, or theoretical orientation. But then when they... Uh, the child custody evaluator interview everybody, they found out that every time the dad come to bring up Johnny, mom goes to the bathroom, put a knife to her chest, and to tell Johnny, if you go with dad, I'll kill myself. So Johnny said, no, 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 I'll go with, no, we'll go with dad. But you would know that as a therapist. You would know it as a child custody evaluator. But we have this sense of entitlement and you cannot believe how many therapists writing this letter about Johnny, which is orchestrated fantastically by the attorneys or by the client. So we have this sense of entitlement that what we see in the room is, a, or we can figure it out. So we have righteousness and add risk management to that and the sense of, uh, because we are really powerless, so we accommodate with a sense of omnipotence. Yeah, say more about that. You know, it's like, 
how effective we are. I mean, how humble. You know, you and I have been in the field for a long time, and our parents <laughs> have been in the field. And, you know, I come with a lot of humility. I mean, I know I'm not, not coming across humble, perhaps, today. <laughs> but when I come to therapy, I come with a lot of humility and... Uh, it's like, what do, what do I know? Does he want to change? Can, can, can you change? No, the client wants to be changed. So we have a frustration about it, and we try to jump the gun to, to show much more omnipotence or some much more knowledge or much more competence that we really have. That's an interesting thought because I, I think about how much ambiguity there is in this work often, you know, and how much, um, you know, just how much uncertainty about even, you know, if a client shows, you know, great strides, what's who knows what that's going to be five, 10 years down the road for them, you know, and there's so many. And then there's the cases where it's like maybe we didn't think we had that much of an effect. And then you hear from the person years later and they say like, you know, you changed my life. You know, it's it's very strange work, you know, to to live in that ambiguity and that perhaps there, there are these situations in which people really grasp for a sense of certainty around like right and wrong and yes and no and, and um, you know, what should be done and a clear path forward, which is so often not um, the space that we're living in as we're actually doing this work. On top of what you said so beautifully is a sense of entitlement that we are so powerful. But it's like we have this illusion of power and combined with the risk management and this some flavor of psychoanalytic thinking, it's a, it's a bad combination and that creates this righteousness in directing clients to, to file complaint. One of the questions that we want to answer today is, so what do you do about it? So the answer for that is, if clients leave and they go to another therapist, try to get a written permission to talk to the subsequent therapist. Because once you talk to the subsequent therapist, they are much less likely to say, what? Because they talk to you. And you explain that she come in the office and she wouldn't say one word. We go with the three dogs on a walk. She doesn't shut up. She talks for an hour and a half. So once you talk to the next therapist, they are much less likely to turn on you. So what I encourage people in order not to kind of fall into the trap of the subsequent therapy syndrome is to get permission from the client to talk to the subsequent therapist. And once they make this connection with you, I find that the likelihood for them to encourage the client to demonize you or to file a complaint is really reduced. You explain to them why, you're being reasonable with them, they just create a connection with you, so they're moving kind of off the pedestal of risk management, kind of, uh, I need to protect my client. So they have the sense of kind of, uh, this is why we went for a walk, or this is why how we met. We met on the basketball court. This is what happened in small town. You have a chance to explain. We went on a field trip with our kids, whatever it is. So you, you kind of normalize and put it in context, and then the therapist will not do the what, what. But it's not always possible. But when you get a sense of uh, the clients living in a half, you can you can tell them, listen, I may spare you 
months, days, years of therapy by updating the next therapies of what we were not successful and what we were successful so the therapist can just take it from here on. So, which is really, I believe it's true. So if you talk to the client about it and you talk to the next therapist, you reduce the chance significantly, almost to very little or no, no, no chance of complaint because the therapist, you are not just an, an entity. Like a faceless bad guy who did, did something to the client. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I get consultation from people who are afraid that subsequent therapies will happen. So they want to uh, justify what they did. So they have a chance to brainstorm with me. And what they do, they can write the rationale for what they did. I explained to Dr. Zur that, one, two, three, four, and just become part of the record. So it doesn't look defensively either. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, yeah. So like, like documenting it as part of a consultation. Exactly. And that's become part of the, part of the, uh, the record because you don't want to go back to change the record. Absolutely not. Records are dated. So don't change the record. But if you consult, and I explained, and I, I had yesterday two of them. I mean, I explained to Dr. Zur that now you have a chance to, to write something that you didn't write three months ago in the record. And this is huge sense of protection. And again, the standard of care is not standard of perfection. So, but you can explain what you attempted to do, even though it was not successful or was successful. So, a consultation is one way to explain your what you did, why you did, why did you hug at the end of each session, why did you go for a walk, why did you do a home visit, why did you bring a present from your vacation. Why did you accept present? Whatever it is that you need to do. I was just thinking too, you know, about uh, the other, you know, side of this, which is preventing therapists from jumping the gun and engaging in this kind of thing themselves. You know, I, I just wanted to highlight the, the point you made about bringing humility to the work. You know, I think that's so, that's so key. You know, I think when I was, you know, a beginning therapist, to me, it was a lot easier to be judgmental of my clients, previous therapists, because I hadn't had, I hadn't experienced the full complexity, right? And I hadn't seen, I hadn't had as much evidence, I think, of how skewed somebody's perspective can be, you know, on, on their own therapeutic experience. You know, I, I've, I'm sure, you know, after you've been in the field a number of years, everyone has gotten like an angry email or an angry letter or phone call from a former client saying you did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And, and maybe there's a tiny grain of truth in some of that, but that it's a huge misrepresentation of, you know, something you said or, or, you know, the something dynamic in the relationship. And, and after having that experience to me, I, you know, I, I don't, I can hold respect for my clients and, and what they bring and their perspective and also know that something they say that their therapist, their previous therapist said or did may not really be a, a very accurate representation. And I hope there'll be many more of you and that perhaps this podcast perhaps will help. I hope so. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I think there absolutely should be, you know, a balance between um, being able to contend with each other as therapists and say, you know, if we do see somebody doing something we don't think is right, to be able to talk about that without just jumping totally to this extreme, you know, accusations of unethical behavior and so forth. And file the file complaint, kind of. You're right. We need, we need to be able to talk to each other, which I encourage. 
So I think that being able to talk to the other person and to listen, this is what the client presented to me, and this is why I did what I did, can help the client ultimately, which is really what our job is. And I think being able to just cultivate the capacity to disagree, you know, even if like you hear someone's context and justification and it feels totally different than what you would do still in that situation, that doesn't mean it's an ethical violation. It can just be that we vigorously disagree on the right approach sometimes. As, as you can imagine, me playing basketball and <laughs> going on field trip. Right, right, right. <laughs> But, you know, APA end up publishing my books. And <laughs> yeah, you, you seem like you're doing all right. <laughs> I, I'm doing okay. But, you know, the field hasn't changed enough for my taste. So I need to do more before. My mother taught me to do good every day. So from age 10, we had to report about the good deed of the day. Oh, so that's great. <laughs> my sister and I had to make up stories. So I'm still... <laughs> I'm still working hard on, on, on to do good. What are the changes you would like to see? Like when you think about like how you would like to leave it, um, the field versus how you came in, what are the things you would like to see change? You know, I, I, I'm still dealing with dumb, punitive licensing boards that just atrocious and not all of them, but so many of the risk management experts who do not know the difference between risk management and ethics and standard of care. And uh, so this is where the changes. I would like uh, many boards do not have a way to uh, appeal. So in some places, a murderer have more rights than a therapist because the boards, like in California, they have the right not to adopt an appeal to administrative law judge. What? So, I mean, so I, I have a few campaigns a little bit <laughs> to, to feel that I can rest in peace. Right. I may need to die without feeling rest in peace. <laughs> so the last thing I'll ask, and I think we've, touched on a few of these, and I'm sure you have many, but so I ask everybody who comes on, um, who I talk to, who's a therapist to share what I call an, a therapist can't say that moment that they've had at some point, meaning, you know, some point at which, you know, you've found yourself saying something, whether that's to colleagues, clients, students, you know, anyone could be anyone, um, where you've said something and then, you know, you've, you've known that that's something like taboo that a therapist is not supposed to say that. Oh, I have a long list yes, of Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I shared with you, it's okay to be naked with a <laughs> right, client, you know? Right, <laughs> I mean, we can go right to the top. <laughs> you know, my relationship with you may kill you because I may fix your PTSD and you go back to battle. But my in prison, if you tell me about drugs, I'm going to report and you're going to be in isolation and punished. And, and, and things that kind of more even more local kind of, uh, you know, is it okay to hug? Is it okay if you're a Christian for me to give you water from the Jordan River? I just came from Israel too, so I brought <laughs> I brought some water from, and for some Jewish people, I, I brought something from Jerusalem and for Muslim people, I brought something from El Aqsa. Oh, nice, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I have a long list of of things that I've said and you're not supposed to say. Thank you. I think it's been a great conversation. I think people are going to really benefit from hearing this. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. So now I'm going to ask you to remember the example you came up with at the beginning of this episode, right? The example of something a new client could say about a previous therapist that you would find very concerning, maybe even concerning enough that you would encourage your client to report their previous therapist to the board. And I would just invite you to reflect on whether anything you heard in our interview today has made you rethink that response. Thanks again to Dr. Zur for our conversation. I learned from Dr. Zur that this was his first podcast appearance. So appreciate the leap of faith there and hope to have him on sometime again in the future. In the meantime, next episode in my deep dive into this topic, I'm going to be talking more about what subsequent therapist syndrome says about our professional culture, how that reflects on us as individual therapists and people and what we can do about it. So make sure to tune in next time for that one. You can find Dr. Zor at drzor.com. He's got a lot of good stuff there. And you can find me, Reva Stout, at intothewoodsportland.com as usual. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to A Therapist Can't Say That on whatever your preferred platform is for listening to podcasts. And remember to share the show with your therapist's friends who want to hear someone talking about all the things it feels like a therapist can't say. If this episode brought something up for you that you'd like to share with me, or you want to tell me about your own, a therapist can't say that moment. I'd love to hear from you. So please feel free always to shoot me an email or send me a voice note at reva at into the Talk to you next time.